Hello, and welcome to Talking Tropes. Where we make tropes, not war. I'm David. And I'm Hannah. Uh, and today we're uh, we're getting, you know, real hippie times. We're going to be hippies, and we're going to talk about peace mm-hmm. and love. We're going to get, we're going to get real lovey with you all. Um, seriously, guys, like this is, um, this is one of my favorite things to talk about. My favorite tropes in media. Um, I am obsessed with shows that are critical of violence because we surround ourselves all the time with a lot of violence, a lot of, you know, negativity, man. Explosions. Yeah, because, you know, explosions are cool, but you know what else is cool? Hugs. Hugs. Hugs are cool, guys. Hugs are, hugs are cool. Um, so yeah, I mean, do do you find that like uh, in in your life you uh, feel the urge to commit violence, Santa? <laughs> um, no, never, David. I I mean, like, never seriously, but. You know, sometimes you get the urge to smack someone every now and again. Sure. Or, like, push someone. And do you feel like, you know, maybe, like, our TV shows that we like to watch, which often have a lot of punching or suplexing. Sure. Maybe that's a release for that that kind yeah, of... Yeah, that instinct. Yeah. That violent impulse. That's That's my thinking about it. That's interesting. I don't think I had, like, thought about it that way before where tv is sort of acting out some sort of impulse we're not free to carry out in that way i feel like that's really primal yeah i mean that's to me that's why violence is just so cathartic is because it's a chance where like you don't even have to you know necessarily argue your point and be right in order to stop evil you know you can just punch it you can just punch evil (laughs) Well, and, like, we know from the way history has happened that violence often works. <laughs> yep, violence often is a, a driver of history, but often, too, peace and forgiveness or, you know, even nonviolent protest, you know, can be a very powerful driver of history. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, like, one of the tropes that I feel like more than anything has its origins uh, in reality, in real life, the characters are based off of, you know, historical figures that we can sort of look to. Um, number one, a Jesus, <laughs> Martin Luther King, Gandhi. Yeah. Whenever I think about peace and pacifism, um, there's a quote that um, I think I actually saw first in like a Vlogbrothers video like years ago or something. <laughs> of course. Um, and it's by this ancient Greek guy named Thucydides or something. Sorry if I'm probably mispronouncing that. Um, but the quote is... Biggest dickus. Yeah, exactly. Um... The quote is, the strong do what they can, and the weak suffer what they must. Um, And Mm. I feel like that's a really easy thing to believe, because it's really easy and simple that strong, like, might makes right. You know, like, the strong is going to overpower the weak. Like, I'm bigger and smarter, or not even smarter, I'm bigger and meatier than you, and you can't stop me. (laughs) 
big meaty claws. Exactly. <laughs> oh damn! Pulling out the deep cuts. Um, deep cuts. That's SpongeBob. I know it's SpongeBob, but like of the of the SpongeBob quotes. It's my favorite it's SpongeBob. Deep, oh quote. my god. <laughs> Oh, I love for my it. favorite episode. There you go. Um, but but yeah, so I feel like this is an idea that we are faced with constantly in life is and, and like I think it's a it's a question that we have from schoolyard bullies all the way up to international politics, you know? Mm-hmm. Um like how do you stop the kid from bullying you? Cuz ignoring it doesn't work, but if we want to teach our kids to not hurt others what do we do when they're being hurt like how do we protect oh oh, i have an easy answer um you just you go to a a teacher or you go to a a friend and you get them to back you up um that's the solution in every (laughs) single situation in actual real life in fiction it's always oh you could you, you either sit there and take it or you fight back those are the only options, and it's one of my least favorite tropes. And maybe we'll return to that one, the bullies, bully tropes. Yeah. But, like, I hate the stand-up to the bully narrative because it just teaches you basically to start bullying the bully until yeah. they stop bullying you. Right. Bullies are definitely an interesting thing that we. I think we should definitely do an episode on. Um, let us know if you would also like to hear an episode on bullies. Um but yeah, so like you, you know, it's it's the same thing with with schoolyard bullies, but then, you know, in fiction where there's also like the global wars that are happening or interstellar battles or sure, like yeah. anything like that. You know, like this is a very real question that we as humanity keep having. Um and so of course that's reflected in the stories that we tell. And uh, today I think we're going to do like a a a little bit of a deep dive ish into no it's it's really like more of a broad broad? overview all right Um, just (laughs) just getting over all of the peace tropes that we can take a look at this is a multi-trope extravaganza yeah so so we're going to talk about a few different shows um and different types of media but we're we're not going to focus on shows where there's no violence necessarily, but right. shows where they explicitly talk about the meaning of violence. Yeah. It's pretty easy to see that Dora the Explorer is a pacifist, but this is not, we're not going to talk about Dora the Explorer. Right. There's, there's no real violence in that show. Hey, swipe or no swiping. Don't steal shit. Yeah, well, okay. Violence. I mean, it's a mugging, but it's not even really a violent mugging. I mean, he's got claws. <laughs> Those are deadly weapons. Well, okay, then yeah, um, Dora the Explorer, pacifist hero. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so like I'm like you know, there's like a ton of kids cartoons where right. you know it's very moralistic. Don't hurt others. Like ask for help. You know, like things like that. We're not gonna really be talking about those at all. Um, yeah, I mean, not that we're not gonna be talking about kids shows, but we're gonna be talking about shows where the themes of the show are centered on violence and who has the right to commit violence and is violence right in any situation. And we're going to mainly talk about the shows where they decide the answer is, you know, not really. Yeah. Violence 
there's usually another way, except in very specific kill or be killed situations. Uh, speaking of of kill or be killed, um, <laughs> I uh, I replayed uh, Undertale recently. Oh yeah. Um, and also the free released sequel. Uh, Delta or, or sorry, the the sur- the survey app. Um, <laughs> As it was disguised as a survey, um, Delta Rune. Yeah, what are your what are your thoughts, David? Um, yeah, I, I think that f- the way that that game is constructed is really central to what I like about this trope, the peace trope, is that it can be used really effectively by deconstructing a genre that is has totally unquestioned violence within it, such as you know video games where. The reason that there's violence in video games is because it's a very easy to understand goal. You know, oh, I've got to beat the bad guy, kill them. I have to make them explode. It's very satisfying. It's visceral. I think even more so than TV shows with violence in it, like getting to actually commit like simulated violence. It's very cathartic. That's why like people love playing like Grand Theft Auto after a long day at work, you know, like. It makes sense. But, you know, what Undertale does is it gives a moral weight to your decision to just hit the attack button, which in any other game has no moral weight because it's literally required in order to beat the game. Right. So the only other choice is to just not play. Right. It's, It's in fact given positive moral connotations and context. Like you win, you get prizes, you're rewarded for doing violence. Right. And, you know, it's a very surface level analysis of, of Undertale. Oh, I've seen sure. many other pieces that go into much more detail over like the nature of choice in the game and how it, you know, comments on other games. I didn't really care about that when I first played it. <laughs> my, my main thing was that I loved was, oh, finally, it's a fun game where no one has to die, which was the tagline. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Is that something that, like, you'd found yourself, like, wanting from video games in the past? Absolutely. I mean, without a doubt, um, there were, you know, some games, but I mean, like, there were some games that didn't involve violence, but most of them I found really dull. Tetris doesn't have any violence right. in it. It doesn't mean, you know, I can get invested in the story of Tetris. But, um, like, like, any game with a character, there was usually violence or conflict right. with another creature of some kind. Right. No one dies in Pokemon, which is nice, but they do really kick the crap out of each other. Yeah. There's a lot of, you can say there's a lot of violence in Pokemon. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I I guess I'd always sort of craved a a game where you can have a a dating sim in the middle of a battle (laughs) with a a talking skeleton man. Oh, Uh, you're a skeleton fucker, David. We caught you. I'm in the bone zone. <laughs> oh my god! Um, get banned from Tumblr. <laughs> All of Undertale is gonna get banned from Tumblr. Honestly, <laughs> um, but anyway. yeah, I, I think you know it's interesting to look at the the villain of that story, um, in, in a way like. Flowey the flower, which spoiler alert, you find out later is Asriel, the the son of uh, the two goats. <laughs> um, and basically, like the whole reason that he is trying to, you know, 
destroy everything and gain ultimate power is just because he like doesn't want me to leave as a character. Yeah. Um, He's acting out of fear. Yeah, it's it's like a fear of like not having a connection with someone. And I think there's that that, that's like a theme, uh, a trope within peace tropes that's going to see itself repeated over and over again is that the villains in these stories tend to commit violence. Yes. In order to gain something, but really it's ultimately in order to gain respect and love from others. Right. Because part of the like core philosophy of these stories is that one, anyone is capable of violence, but also two, everyone is capable of love. Yeah. So in that worldview, you have to you have to believe that the reason that people commit violence is because they are somehow lacking in love or lacking in support from others. Mm-hmm. As far as like Deltarune is concerned, I think they added like another interesting dimension in the gameplay of it. Okay. Um, you, you played Deltarune. What, what did you think of the, the new battle system? Oops, I got caught. <laughs> I did not play it. I made latkes. Great, that's fine. Womp womp. So yeah, I, I, I picked up Deltarune and I saw the new battle system, which includes a character who genuinely likes hurting people and committing violence. And because you are on a team with this person, you actually have to warn the enemies that someone on your team is going to try and hurt them, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. It's just the idea that like, you know, being a pacifist can sometimes, even when you're on the same side as somebody, it can put you at odds with your, your compatriots. Yeah. That. Uh, I, I don't really want to, like, jump into Trigun completely yet. I still want to talk about Deltarune, but it does remind me of a scene from Trigun. Mm, yeah. Um, where Vash, is, who's the main protagonist of that show, um, who is a pacifist or attempts to be, he's on a train with a young boy, um, and he accidentally hurts some mooks um, of the bad guys who are trying <laughs> to invade the train. Uh, and the kid, and he like stops to give them medical attention. And the kid is like, wait, you are purposefully not like killing these guys. Like, what are you doing? And he was like, there are enemies. We're on a team here. You got to kill them. And he goes, what? Of course not. I can't do that. Um, which seems very similar to this a little bit. And that like, there's someone who just like, doesn't even question it and enjoys it. Exactly. Um, and you sort of have to watch out for that. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good parallel to to note. Um, you know, in, in Deltarune, Susie is the, the name of the character, um, and she's a very classic bully. But in the beginning, she tries to be a good guy, but mainly only knows how to do that by punching bad guys. And, uh, you right. know, the main character, Nameless, you know, or, or Chris, um, has to stop... Susie from just hurting people and generally making life harder. That's also a big theme in Undertale and Deltarune is that violence does not necessarily make things easier. In fact, if you are completely violent, it makes the game much, 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 much harder um, than if you were to just be peaceful about it. Which I think is a really interesting lesson because violence always seems so quick and expedient right. in the moment. Where you're like, well, it'd be easy to just blow up this sandcastle. It's a lot harder to like make build an extra floor on it. Right. Um, and 
like, yeah, that's true, but also it means that, like, nothing's going to protect you from the sun or a seagull, you know, of like, course. it's a bad metaphor. It fell apart a little bit. Yeah, I, I was, but, I was, I was waiting for it to fall apart because you were building a sandcastle with a floors, sand castle. Yeah. <laughs> which they don't have those because, yeah, it would fall apart. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and that's a metaphor. <laughs> and, um. But but also, at the same time, I think other people see pacifism as, like, taking the easy way out. Like, you're you're just not willing to fight, so you're trying to take the easy way out. But um, Yeah, I think that's, that's a really big thing that comes up a lot in um, war movies right. or movies about wars or even in, like, a lot of fantasy. Because it's, like, it, it brings to mind, like, draft dodgers and stuff. Yeah, and, and it, I think it comes up in a lot of, I would say, science fiction more so than fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, I think, interesting, um, where, because I feel like there's always, like, kind of the honorable knight who will fight but never kill or something like that. Right. Um, but, like, in, in sci-fi, I feel like there's always usually a clear, like, us versus alien and not necessarily, like, alien, alien, but just other, us versus another. Right. Or, you know, a totalitarian government that absolutely has to be shut down no matter what. You know, it doesn't matter. Right, because they're committing atrocities, so we need to commit atrocities right back. Right. Um, which is, like, interesting, and it's it's something that, you know, I think a lot of people, like, we root for them. We root for the heroes of Star Wars, right. you know, to fight against Darth Vader, who is evil. But he's still using the very acts of violence to fight him that he's using to oppress others. Are there any actual pacifists in Star Wars? I was thinking about this. I don't think because so. Because it does draw a lot from like, <clears throat> you know, sort of Eastern mythology and like those kind of tropes. Um, and you would think that there'd be somebody who's like, you know, I don't choose to, you know, interfere in these petty, you know, human af- or alien affairs. Um, well, I mean, I feel like the Jedi are sort of like supposed to sort of be above it all, but they kill all the fucking time. So, well, like, I mean, I think like the implication was in like the original trilogy that they were like that. But then it was revealed in the prequels that, you know, that was just like a total lie that they made up in order to make themselves seem <laughs> nicer than they were when they're actually just like mm. a band of murder people <laughs> who yeah. go around murdering people for polit- political reasons. That, that, that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, and I can see why. Um, going back to Undertale for just, like, one more second. Yeah, 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 totally. Because <laughs> I don't want to spend too much time there, but it is a great game, and Toby Fox deserves all your money. It, yeah, it's it's amazing. They do... It's, it's not the case in that game that, like, being peaceful is easier in every situation, though. It's just, like, if you don't consider peace as an option you can miss out on really quick solutions to seemingly difficult problems. But also it becomes much harder to play that game. If you're completely pacifist versus, you know, I only, you know, I'll kill some of the minor enemies, but I won't kill the main bosses or whatever, because if you don't like fight, you don't get stronger and it's, you don't level up. Mm -hmm. So you don't, um, you you know, you, you don't gain the ability to like, use like really powerful attacks later in the game, which could make it easier. Instead, you just have to kind of wait out the attacks and sort of wait for the bad guy, you know, wait for the, the boss fights to finish 
and then you just kind of right. like you know mercy them once they're all tired and all once they're all tuckered out <laughs> uh, i i think that's really interesting because it's it's trying to teach that peace requires patience sometimes absolutely yeah um, it takes a lot which is longer kind of... it's like a time consuming thing peace and yeah which is which is so wild and like i feel like so against at least our modern like programming of like we all just want some instant gratification yeah and like a punch in the face is nothing if not instant you know <laughs> and i feel like we've been kind of talking around it but all of this is like incredibly relevant today um surrounding like this conversation of like is it okay to punch nazis and like yeah i i know that i'm supposed to say yeah no yeah you can you can punch nazis like they are people who advocate for the destruction of literally entire groups of people um millions and millions mm -hmm. and millions of people so what is one punch going to do but at the same time like this is something that like i hold to be is very one precious. punch gonna make more nazis well yeah on the one hand like from a practical standpoint can violence beget more violence which is absolutely a big theme in a lot of these shows but on, on another level, like, is it just something that you shouldn't do? Like, you know, in a in a very like moral imperative sense, are you just not supposed to punch people in general? Yeah. And I don't know the answer to that. But a lot of these I don't think... shows present different scenarios that might affect. Yeah. It. And, and I will say, I think a lot of these shows understand that this is a really hard question they're asking. Right. Um, and they're like, you know, like they're fiction, they're written the way they are because like they can be, right. um, like their actions can or can't work because of whatever the writer decides to put in there. Um, but, but I think they all do really give an honest shot at trying to explore this question rather than answer it. Yes. Um, which I think is really important and really great. Yeah. I think, you know. A show like Trigun really shows a, a balanced portrayal wherein for most of like the everyday like, you know, walkabout baddies who just are trying to rob banks because they're bad people, you know, like for most of those situations, peace is pretty effective and you don't have to kill right. people. But for some of the big bads, you know, some of the gung-ho guns and uh, the, you know... Legato and uh, and knives like you, you can't really spare them. You can't mercy them because mm -hmm. they legitimately just want to see everyone suffer because they have no yeah. sympathy or empathy for anyone. Yeah, they have no like internal love in their heart. And I don't know if that's realistic, but it definitely, you know, they represent something real, which is, you know, like movements or like evil organizations that yeah. Don't have a well, and and I, <laughs> right, and and I think it um it brings up that question again of like punching Nazis, like what is one punch to one person to save a thousand? Right. You know, like where's the pragmatism, um, like pragmatic philosophy of this? Right. But you know, at the same time, I like that you know Vash is conflicted about it he doesn't just say like oh it's, yeah he's not coldly logical 
you know? And mm-hmm. I think that's something that we are starting to see a lot more in our, our heroes. And it's not something that I like. Um, the coldly logical hero who makes the the tough decisions at the, you know, moment of truth. I want someone who's conflicted. You think we're starting to see more of that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like, okay. like, I think um, a lot of, like, Marvel heroes, or, or but, but way more, like, DC heroes, um, mm. they're, like, a little bit less conflicted about, you know, doing what needs to be done just because it's got to be done. Mm. I see that a lot in, like, the, the Dark Knight trilogy, which I've included on this yeah. list. And he doesn't necessarily <laughs> kill anyone in those situations, but he does some pretty awful fascist kind of things in like each of the movies. Yeah, well, and and I mean, I think that's one thing, too, that that I want to talk about with Trigun. Um, also, for those of you who might not know, Trigun is an anime from, I believe, the 90s. Yes. Um, the golden age, some call it. Is it's a space western, so it's a western themed and styled um, anime, but with a couple of fantastical elements because it is actually the wild west of outer space. Um, and it's about this man, Vash the Stampede, who is a wanted criminal for destroying a town, um, but really he's a peace loving pacifist crybaby, um, and it sort of follows him throughout the throughout. 26 episodes. Yeah. And then halfway through, um, you find out that his brother is trying to kill him and sends a bunch of hitman out to kill him. Um, and yeah. his brother is evil and kind of wants to see evil all of and wants to kill die. all the humans. <laughs> yep. Not great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but so he is someone who will not kill. Um, that is like something that is core to his being and his brother more so than even wanting to kill Vash wants to break him before he kills him and wants to force his hand into killing um, as sort of like a form of torture. Um, yeah. His brother's name is literally knives. <laughs> like he's fucked up. Yeah. So, so Vash is, um, you know, creating a, a trail of destruction seemingly, but it's mainly just because he, he seeks out trouble. And he always helps and he always does what he can and he doesn't always save everybody, but, but he, does you know, he does his best. Um, and he feels really, really guilty about like if he wouldn't step in or if he um, causes like damage, um, like he feels really, really bad about the collateral damage, but also believes so strongly in not like killing a person that no one has the right to decide if someone else lives or dies. Right. Like, like, you know, the fastest way to maybe end it would be if he just shot the dude, you know, but he doesn't believe in that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's the that's another big thing is that Trigun, as in the name, has really like powerful guns yeah. in it. And everyone has guns in the entire world because yep. it's the Wild West in space. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that like Vash is able to use his gun in ways that aren't even necessarily violent sometimes uh like he'll you know ricochet a bullet just to like break someone's machine or or whatever um and even if it is violent he's perfectly capable of like not shooting like kill shots yeah it's a little bit unrealistic in (laughs) fact it's completely unrealistic but like it's kind of like beautiful in a way oh yeah um and it, it still is, like, very cathartic in the way that most violent TV shows are. Mm-hmm. Like, you are taking out, with violence, a bunch of criminals. 
but at the same time you're but doing it in like a non-lethal way and it just feels good it's a feel-good show it is up until, oh, the, until end. the end <laughs> then it gets real <laughs> sad real fast yep but Trigun is is extremely careful about when it implements violence. Right. And I think that's what makes me love Trigun so much as a show um, and what made it my, my favorite anime for a good long while. It, it, it's just, it's very concerned with how violence is used. And for sure. it doesn't want to portray the bad guys as, you know, um, 100% bad 100% of the time, but it doesn't want to show that there's good in everybody. Like, there's some people who are just... Who are just evil. Irredeemable. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, Trigun is extremely careful in a way that a show like Doctor Who is really not careful at all. <laughs> it's very yeah. sloppy. Um, yeah. And I know we talk well, about Doctor Who a lot on this show, <laughs> but we're going to talk about it some more because Doctor yeah. Who's got some issues with the idea of violence. Yeah. Um, Doctor Who is definitely one of those shows. I mean, I think we've, if you've been listening to our TARDIS tropes, um, you know that this season it's been brought up that the Doctor hates guns again. Um, hates uh, guns a but, lot. Like, more but, so even than I think David Tennant hated guns. Oh, yeah. And, like, but she doesn't seem to have any problem blowing shit up. <laughs> she's very uncareful like she loves bombs and i think part of this is just like it's a show that's been running for 50 years it would be insane if it had stuck to a single moral like code for that amount of time Um, i mean you say that but like at the same time like i'm trying to think of other like super long running shows um like something like star trek like star trek has always had Star Trek has always had the prime directive, you know, non-interference. That is its moral. And it only breaks it and it has to justify it every time it breaks that code. Yeah, but like every single fucking episode, they break that. But that's the point is that they have to justify it when they break it. And the, the doctor does not have that. The doctor has... Sometimes I'm going to be really condescending to other people who've committed violence. And then I'm going to commit just as much violence myself. You know, I'm going to be really upset in, um, you know, oh God, what was the episode? Um, the doctor's daughter. I'm going to be really yeah. upset when my clone daughter is off, you know, punching people and shooting them with a gun. But then like, a few episodes later, he's, <laughs> you know, he's like blowing shit up in outer space. I mean, yeah. Um, I will say this about the doctor's daughter is okay. I feel like his annoyance and anger towards his cloned daughter in that episode, uh, mm-hmm. in this never ending war zone that they find themselves in, um, I, I feel like that's actually just anger at himself. Like he's seeing reflected in her a lot of things that he likes about himself, but a lot of things that he really hates about himself. And he's sort of being forced to confront that. Right. And I think um, this is part of the reason that um, that I this is part of the reason that I like will forgive it more in in David Tennant than I do in Jodie Whittaker, because um, Jodie Whittaker's doctor does not seem to feel any guilt about or remorse about any violence that she commits. As long as um, it's not with a gun. 
Yeah, as long as it's not with a gun. Uh, whereas David Tennant is like constantly in agony in his soul and angst. And yeah. that's why I like Russell T as a writer sometimes, but also I find him to be a little bit over the top. <laughs> I, like, here's the thing. I loved that angst. Like, it was great, but I was also very tired of he's it. so angsty, but also he's portrayed as like a Jesus figure. Like, he's such like this perfect messiah and like everybody loves him, but also he's got a dark side. Oh, I feel like the doctor always is. Like, I, I would say I would say the same thing of Matt Smith, you know? Oh, no, I, I agree. But like... Um, Stephen Moffat's characterization of the doctor in regards to like his violence is that um, the doctor is just a terrible person and <laughs> no one should really like the doctor and he's kind of the worst. Um, I, I feel like, you know, seasons uh, five through 10 uh, pretty much are, are just going into like, Okay, yeah, the doctor is hated by most of the galaxy. They're going to send like a like a an assassin to kill him because they hate him so much for how much he screws up everyone's plans. Uh -huh. um, they're going to lock him in a box and like everyone is united in hating the doctor because he's a yeah. jerk. Yeah. That's that's true. That's so true. at least that's consistent whereas Dave uh, as uh, Russell T Davies a little less consistent. A little more like he's 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 Jesus. He died for our sins, and then also um, he he's a, a genocidal maniac who destroyed everybody. Yeah, well, and I, and I feel like that's uh, something that like in Doctor Who, the companions we were saying like are usually there to like be the moral guide for the Doctor, who right. is sort of this like ageless, timeless almost amoral sometimes god figure right um you know like that's that's the whole point of turn left where right. you know if donna had never met the doctor then like she would never have stopped him from killing the big spider lady whose name i forget um the rachnos right and by doing so killing himself which like eh. Um, I don't know if he would have died. Uh, I guess he just drowned. I guess he just drowned too much so he couldn't regenerate, I guess. <laughs> I guess the doctor just can drown. Um, yeah. But, you know, as far as, like, the doctor and violence is concerned, I think that, like, most people will immediately jump to a few key scenes in New Who, at least. Um, sure. There's the scene in The Doctor's Daughter where he has a gun pointed directly at the bad military guy's head, and then he pulls it back and he goes, I never would. <laughs> and I think, like, that, like, stuck in a lot of people's brains. Um, yeah. And that particular scene is carried through in his arc until his very last episode, David Tennant. Um, yeah, that's true. In the end of time, where he is again given like a gun and a choice and he chooses not to shoot anybody in the head when shooting literally anyone in the head would have solved the problem. But also he didn't really have to cause he could have just shot the machine and that works too. Yeah. So, kind of a non-choice, kind of a, a weak but ending to fine. that episode. <laughs> it's fine. It made you feel something a little bit. 
in a, it, in a moment. Kind of. It, it mostly made me feel like this is pretty stupid. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but, all right, but yeah. Well, what's, what's another big moment? Um, and the other big you. moment for the doctor in terms of pacifism is um, in the recent uh, Zygon two-parter in season nine. Um, oh, yes. Peter Capaldi's doctor is faced with this group of terrorist Zygons. Um, they're, they're an extremist group that wants to, um, you know, destroy humanity and, and take over specifically so that they can, uh, be themselves is it's a, it's a very loose, very awkward, um, metaphor for, um, radical Islamic terrorism. Um, is it? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty, like, specifically defined as that. Um, the idea is, like, they, they, they refer uh, often to, like, you know, it's just a small minority of the Zygons who are like this. Most of them just want to integrate and, you know, mm. be, like, live amongst us. But there's just yeah. these few who, you know, want to upend everything and, and, you know, kill a bunch of people to make a big show out of it. Um, right. So it's these terrorist Saigons who have broken away um, and their motto is truth or consequences. You know, we need to live our truth or there will be consequences for you. Um, yeah. And the way that the doctor solves this problem is completely nonviolent. What he does yeah. is he makes two boxes and he says, all right, humans, if you press this button, it'll um, destroy uh, all the Zygons, they'll all be dead. And um, if you press this button, it'll turn all the turn all the Zygons into their real forms. So they'll all join your cause and kill all the humans. Mm -hmm. So those are like the two choices. But then he flips it and says, here's the thing. I'm not going to tell you which button does what. <laughs> <laughs> So if either of them choose to, you know, press this button, they are doing what he calls a scale model of war. And they're mm -hmm. saying, OK, when you start a war, you don't know who is going to die. It could be every, it could be your entire race. It could be their entire race. It could be a ton of people. It could be a few people. But when you start violence, the violence doesn't really stop until it's over. Mm -hmm. Well, and then the other thing that he says in that speech that um, I really thought is like the most powerful point is that, well, we might win and that's a chance that I'm willing to take. And that tends to be a chance that people do take over and over again. Right. Um, but then the doctor says, but for how long? Right. Um, and, and I think especially in the like current political spectrum that we live in where we sort of are at endless war, um, uh, you know, and I think this has been happening like since like the Cold War really sort of kicked off right. of this endless foreign war. Like it, it, we win, but only until we don't. <laughs> We're, right. You know? Yeah. No, you're like, absolutely right. Like for how long? The only solution to war is peace. It can right. never be war. What he says is, and it's, it is sort of true in a way. I mean, it's not totally true, but he says, you know, all war 
It's just a lot of buildup until everyone does what they always have to do at the end, which is sit down in a room and talk. Yeah, um, that's so true. I forgot about that part. Yeah, I, I don't think that the the Treaty of Versailles would have happened if World War One didn't happen before it. And it might not have, you know, made everybody happy uh, because, you know, the Treaty of Versailles was more or less just punishing Germany and blaming Germany for everything. Right. Um, which is really, you know, sort of a might makes right kind of situation because it was sort of everybody's oh. fault, World War One. Yeah, it was a big bar fight. Yeah. Um, so, so blaming it all in Germany maybe wasn't completely fair. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in the end, at the end of every war, um, even in like a might makes right situation, you still like have to talk to the people that you've defeated or conquered and mm-hmm. you have to create a plan, a diplomatic plan to, to resolve all the tension. Yeah. And, and I think something that like, you know, war always does is it has to create this winner loser dichotomy. Right. Um, and it's really bad at creating like a larger community unless you're right. fighting the other, you know, it's bad. It's hard to make like a mutually beneficial solution when a lot of people are dead. Why don't we take a break from just being yeah. like, all all up in the TV shows right now? And, and let's go to tvtropes.com, okay. uh, our Lord yeah. and Savior. Um, <laughs> blessed be thy name. Blessed be the TV tropes. Um, and, and let's sort of run down some of the sub-tropes of pacifism. Um, okay, yeah. Do, do you want to just like list some of them off and we'll try and think of examples? Um, so a couple of the uh, tropes on this page... Um, the first one is actual pacifist. So, you know, it is what it says on the tin. In, in the who, traditional definition. Right. Like, they do not kill. They do not commit violence. They dodge. They don't punch. They don't pinch. They don't paunch. Um, no. Nope. Just hug and kiss and talk and dodge. Yep. And not a lot um, of characters fall into this category. Um, but I think one show that I've ever seen kind of does. Um and that's a, a, a sort of forgotten Disney Channel uh, original animation called Wander Over Yonder. Yeah. Starring Jack McBrayer as a, as a fuzzy little alien man who walks around being nice to people. Yeah, this was an interesting one. I, had, I hadn't watched it um, while it was on. I think I, like, maybe, <laughs> like, watching it, I did definitely feel like, okay, this is young. Um it's for kids it's for kids yeah yeah like it's the sort of thing that if i was a parent i wouldn't mind having on in the background but i'm not gonna sit down and watch it with my kid necessarily Um, i think i would but i i just have a lot more love for for craig mccracken i think yeah irrationally do you want to do you want to sort of give like a real quick like synopsis of the show yeah wander over yonder is about a little fuzzy man named wander who lives in space and he's got a best friend named Sylvia, who is a like yeah, dinosaur friend. horse lady who, yes. uh, you know, she she likes punching bad guys, but he doesn't. He's more of a, you know, a wandering guy uh, who uh, plays the banjo well, and has a magic hat and likes to help people. He's very helpful. Uh, well, isn't his catchphrase like it never hurts to help? Never hurts to help. And that's often played ironically because he often gets very hurt um, because one of the people that he's trying to help is a an evil Skeletor man. 
Yes. Very heavily based on Skeletor. (laughs) And Nazis. And, well, yeah, I mean, but so is Skeletor. (laughs) That's fair. Um, Yeah, but he's uh, he's a skeleton man named Lord Hater because he is the greatest hater in the galaxy. Um, Yeah. Which, you know, very on the nose with names. It is a kid's show. um, And it's a parody of another kid's show at that. um, Parodying, you know, uh, Mm He-Man. And uh, fascinatingly enough, the, the most effective way of stopping a powerful skeleton wizard like Lord Hater is not really to fight him because he's too powerful to fight. But it's more so just to like annoy, annoy him, him and distract into... him so that all of like right. the good people can get away. Right. Or that like he becomes like his own worst enemy. Right. Um, and I think that's I think that's very common in a lot of these shows. Um, and it very much feels a little bit like the like I don't. I forget if it's karate or some other martial arts where it's like you're supposed to use your enemy's force of their attack against them. Definitely like, judo. It's not so does much. That. Is yeah. it judo? Um, yeah. Where. But I think almost all like, martial arts do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, probably. You use their weight against them for sure. Right. Right. Well, or not just their weight, but like their own. It's like that by attacking, you find a way to turn their attack into their own demise. So it's not about how strong you are or the violence you can do. It's how to deflect and, like, redirect the violence that's already happening. (laughs) Which, you know, not to get off track, but that's a big part of Avatar The Last Airbender. Oh, for Um, sure. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that makes Zuko powerful once he learns how to redirect lightning is that... You know, he can use their attacks against them. Um, or or dissipate them into, like, non-threatening attacks altogether. Right. Just release them into the sky. Yeah, and, uh, of course, you know, Toph often uses people's, like, weights against them, you know, just by sort of, like, shifting out of the way and letting them crash into each other. And right. Aang is a circle walker, so he can just sort of, like, dodge attacks and you know, walk around them enough that they tire themselves out or make people blow up their own ships with fireballs. He's great at that. I, I, I just want to put a pin in this because I want to talk about Wander sure. more first. And there's so much to say about Avatar. Of course. Um, but yeah, so like Wander, you know, he'll dodge out of the way and the villain will crash into a rock or he'll like distract him and he'll blow up his own face, you know? Um, right. Yeah. I mean, it's not like there's no, um, you know, damage at all. There's no like, you know, hurting themselves, but it's not really violence committed. It's just sort of a passive avoidance of of uh, of violence that ultimately blows up in the attacker's face. <laughs> yeah, it was really interesting for me watching this because I just got like so many Wiley Coyote Roadrunner like oh, vibes absolutely. Yeah. from this show. Um like if you haven't seen Wander Over Yonder, think like Wiley Coyote Roadrunner. Um because it's very much that. It's like this like happy go lucky fast little like thing that keeps eluding this evil like plotting person. Um and Yeah, just, just usually by running away. Um, you know, or riding his noble steed. 
Right, um, and it is always like one step behind him or he turns around and he's there when he thought he had just destroyed him. Um, like a lot of like very physical, goofy humor like that. Yeah. Um, but it's also very, you know, like SpongeBob and like, you know. Oh, yeah. If, if you know, Squidward is to Lord Hater as SpongeBob is to um, is to Wander, you know, oh, the, he's, yeah. he's an annoying little guy um, mm-hmm. on purpose. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think one thing also that like talking about this has, has made me realize is that mm-hmm. the people who tend to be pacifists, um, they're all like unrealistic, you know? Well, like, yeah, it's all... fantasy. There's, I mean, in real life, like a lot of problems can be solved nonviolently, but most of them are going to come up against real threats. And once you once you yeah. come up against a real threat, you know, it's unrealistic. But I would argue that like, you know, shows that rely heavily on violence are also inherently unrealistic. Oh, I I totally agree. The idea that being morally in the right is always going to make you the strongest, you know, like no one's, no one really believes that to be the case in in reality. Oh, I I totally agree. And I think like for, there was like a wave of shows um, in like the early 20 teens that was very much of that ethos. You know, I think that's like the rise of Game of Thrones as like, well, you can't just solve every problem with peacing and loving. Like, argh, here's what happens when you right, peace Right, but in Game of much. Thrones, you can't solve every problem with violence either. You know, that's so true. You, at least, at least not with undirected violence. You know, you, yeah. you have to be careful, and you have to be smart, and you have to be able to, you know, rally a, a, a large group of people to your cause. But you also mm-hmm. have to be able to, you know talk things over with the opposing side because, you know, no, no one can solve every problem, you know, on their own. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to be willing to talk to the other side as well. Exactly. But wander over Sorry. yonder. He's, is he yeah. unrealistic in, in, in that he's a cartoon furry man? Oh yeah. Or yeah. that he is a spaceman <laughs> who, who walks in bubbles in order to travel between <laughs> galaxies. <laughs> right. Exactly. But I, I, I don't even mean unrealistic and like, of course, it's cartoon, but it's like these characters are always larger than life or have supernatural abilities of some kind that allow them to be more peaceful than us. Right. Because if, yeah, if you're if you're a peaceful individual who goes up against a violent attacker, chances are you just die. And that's where the yeah. story ends. But if you're the doctor and you can regenerate or talk really good, or if you're Trigun and you have a longevity and like a healing factor, or, or if you're, you're an Undertale, avatar. yeah, if you're the avatar and you can reincarnate and also you have supernatural abilities and you can fly, um, right. or if you're an Undertale and you have the power of determination, which is really just the power of being able to load up a save state. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, like if you can, you know, survive then only then can, you know, you actually be an effective pacifist. Yeah. Um, which I think is interesting. Um, like, I, I don't know if we have any... In fact, I don't really know if we have any not sci-fi fantasy titles on this, like, pacifist list. We do have one on the list. We actually have two on the list, but I haven't watched either of them, which is okay. a shame. Um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid makes a very, like, a, a very real point of making it so that 
the the hero has never actually killed anyone. Yeah. Um, and then there's the TV show MacGyver. But they die at the end. Sorry. Spoilers. They do die at the end. You're right. Um, <laughs> like, like, you know, they their the pacifism can't save them in the end. Sure. I mean, I'd say anybody would agree to that. I don't know. I, of course, I want to see realist, uh, realistic, you know, a realistic take on how um, nonviolence can, you know, can actually lead to, to good results. I, I really like stories about people talking their way out of tough situations. Yeah. Um, finding, you know, compromise in un- uncompromising people. You know, yeah. those are things that I really like. But I understand that for a lot of storytellers, they just don't see a way of doing that unless they're also immortal. Um, right. <laughs> which, you know, I get it. Um, but yeah, the other one where they're not immortal is MacGyver, which... <laughs> You know, it's network television, so I guess that's part of the reason why he doesn't hurt anybody. Yeah. Uh, you know, MacGyver is like two steps away from a kid's show. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's still, it still counts. Yeah, yeah. I have also not seen MacGyver. I've literally only seen the SNL parodies of it. MacGruber. So I'm entirely unequipped to talk about it. Sure. So let's not. <laughs> um, let's stick to Wander. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, I don't know if I have that much more to say about Wander. I, I definitely do. do. I really, All I right. really like this show. And yeah. I, I don't know. I go through like waves of like being really obsessed with it and then kind of forgetting it exists. Um, <laughs> but I think like Craig McCracken did great work on Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends, did great work on Powerpuff Girls, but yeah. I really like Wander Over Yonder, um, because there's... The, like the first episode that they did was this episode called The Picnic. Um, uh-huh. Wherein it was a really good first episode. It's so good. Um, they, there's this giant celestial event that's happening. Um, and whoever's there at the moment of truth uh, gets their wish granted. Um, mm. And so Lord Hater is going to be wishing to be the greatest in the galaxy, the most powerful ruler of all. Um, and then, you know, Wander just shows up and has a picnic and starts offering him sandwiches and distracting him um, and annoying him so much that he wastes his wish on wishing that he would shut up for just five seconds. Yep. <laughs> it's perfect. It's really good. Um, and so, like, most of season one is sort of like that. Lord Hader will show up on a planet or there will be a problem to solve. And Wander will solve it mostly just by being nice and friendly. Um, yeah. And if that doesn't work, you know, Sylvia, his noble steed and best friend, will come in and, like, you know, beat Kick up some butt. monsters. But, you know, always, like, leaving them alive. It is a kid's show. Um, yeah. And, you know, Wander is still opposed to that kind of fisticuffs. Totally. Um, but in, um, what, in season two, of... we really start to like deconstruct it, right? Yeah. W- would you say that, um, sorry, just to go back to like general peace tropes, would you say that Wander is an actual pacifist? Yeah, that's yeah. that was why, we, why I brought him yeah. up originally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say he's an actual pacifist. Whereas, you know, a lot of the people on this list are technical pacifists, um, mm-hmm. which basically means that they, you know, they fight when they're attacked, but they'll never yeah. instigate a fight. 
and they don't kill and they'll do yeah, as little I, harm I, as possible. I think TV Tropes has that as a martial pacifist. Um, martial pacifist is when they specifically use martial arts and yeah. it, I believe so. Isn't technical pass? What do they have technical pacifist as? Technical pacifist is um, willing to beat people up as much as they want. Um, they may even get a few fatalities through, but when it comes to a choice between killing the villain and not, a technical pacifist will not kill them. And a martial pacifist so is someone who will beat someone up, but do as little harm as possible, right? Yeah. Yeah. So technical is they'll beat you within an inch of your life, but they won't kill you. Martial is I'll beat you up, but I'll try to do it as painlessly as possible. I think I think a technical pacifist might even be allowed to like kill a few no name characters, but then when mm. it comes to like the final choice, that's when they really get to spare them. And so you yeah. know, I'm not I turned like on by technical Avatar. pacifist. It's so arbitrary. Well, I, here's the thing: I feel like Avatar falls under technical pacifist. <sighs> well, we'll get to that. I still wanted All to right. kind of keep talking about Wander. All right. We can't talk about Wander the whole podcast. But I, I would argue, no, the, that, you know, Avatar is, he's a, he's a martial pacifist through and through. But I want to talk about Wander. I want to say um, that they, they do a really interesting thing when they move into season two and that they introduce this even worse bad guy who is, like, so much more evil than Lord Hater. Um but Lord Hater falls in love with her and tries to, like, ask her out on a date, which reveals that really he's not that invested in being evil. He just sort of wants to look cool and he wants friends and he wants people to like him. So as soon as somebody comes along who, like, he wants to be friends with and wants to date, he sort of changes his tune. Right, exactly. And Even then bad guys love something. Right, even bad guys love something. And uh, as far as, like, this badder bad guy, uh, Lord Dominator, um, even she is really just looking for friendship in the end. She has an episode where she, you know, goes into disguise because she's bored and then starts hanging out with Sylvia for an episode. And they just kind of, like, have some fun, go to clubs. You know, it's it's all having fun because... You know, no one's evil all the time. It just would be exhausting. Yeah, definitely. Um, And then the way that she is ultimately defeated is that the good guys start rooting for Lord Hater and treating him like a hero. And Wander has a line where he says, you know, Lord Hater is a pretty terrible bad guy. He he never wins, but he's a really good, good guy because when he's fighting for something that he believes in, he's more powerful. Yeah. And I, I like that. I, you know, I like that schmaltz. I like the good, the good, the little good, good boys. Um, and then my favorite episode of maybe the whole show is an episode called The Good Bad Guy. Yeah. Wherein we find out that Wander is immortal, <laughs> as a lot of these characters are. And he has done the Lord Hater treatment to, like, tons of other bad guys in the past. Um, in particular... This one, like, really evil guy that's, like, Lord Hater's, you know, idol. Celebrity crush, yeah, idol. 
Yeah, um, but but he got turned but he's good. Turned him good. And acts kind of like Jeff Bridges. <laughs> um, I don't know who voices him, but he sounds like Jeff Bridges to me. Um, That's great. I love the voice. <laughs> and uh, you know, it's this evil, maniacal, psychic warlord who just gets turned into like, hey man, you know, we uh, let's play some music. Let's you know, let's uh, you know, have a have a snack and talk it over. Right, but then um, Lord Hater is like, hey, I'm going to turn him bad again. Successfully does. Realizes that's a horrible idea. Um, and, and then Lord Hater to... has to be Wander and yeah. be all nice and stuff in order to, to change the bad guy good again. Um, yeah. And then you find out it was all a trick by the bad guy, uh, the, you know, the bigger, badder bad guy to, you know, trick lord hater into into being nice it's yeah. it's a cute little thing so yeah is there any like big meaning to wander over yonder no but for kids i think it's a good message yeah you know, for sure be nice I mean, over fighting evil you know punching and kicking just you know being nice can go a long way as a kid totally and like in a really fun way like it's not af it doesn't feel after school specially you're you know? absolutely right, yeah. Because it's so goofy and wily e. coyote. Um, oh yeah. You know, it it doesn't feel preachy, and I think exactly. I don't think any of these shows really feel preachy to me. Do, no. do any of them strike you as like rolling rolling your eyes? Like, no. Yeah, of nothing course, we feels... shouldn't kill people just for fun. Right. Like nothing feels saccharine. Nothing's like don't do drugs after school, kids. Like. Like, a lot of the characters in these shows or media are facing some sort of, like, real, quote-unquote, danger. Um, right. Like, some sort of actual physical threat that could hurt them. Um, and, of course, they deal with it in sort of goofy, fantastical ways. But it because they're faced with real stakes, it doesn't come off as, Oh, darn, that schoolyard bully real got me, you know? Yeah. Oh, shucks. Um, do, do, do you want to debate technical pacifists versus martial pacifists for Yeah, let's Aang? do it. Let's do <sighs> okay, it. Okay, so Aang, like, it's not that no one has ever died in an episode of Avatar The Last Airbender. They can't mm -hmm. show it on screen because it's a kid's show, but I understand yeah. that in any realistic scenario, some of these characters will have died. Yeah. That being said... Aang doesn't ever intentionally kill someone in the show. That's just true. I feel like he totally does, though. Like, he, like, does a lot of crazy waterbending or, like, sinks ships. Well, or... you can't count when he is in the Avatar state, which he cannot control, where they That's actually true. point out in the story that all of his past lives are, like, way more violent than murderous. him and way more willing to just kill people. Yeah. And in fact, like the the avatar before him, it's a great scene um, that happens at the end where basically Aang is like, oh, crap, I guess I have to actually kill the Fire Lord. But I didn't really think about what having to kill the Fire Lord meant <laughs> in that I have to actually like. Well, or he has to defeat the Fire Lord. Yeah, and, well, I mean, what he thought was basically that he could just, you know, go in, take over the palace, and then once you kick all the, you know, bad people out of the palace, then you're in charge because you're yeah. in the place that's in charge. Um, right. 
he didn't consider the fact that like when you go up against Hitler, it's not enough to just like throw him in jail because from jail you can do a lot of harm. Um, mm-hmm. Especially if you are a fire breathing Hitler. Um, yeah. And you can basically like can burst out. Yeah, you can basically burst out of any prison just by like, you know, sneezing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, for sure, there's a lot of um, people who would say the ending of Avatar The Last Airbender is a deus ex machina, which is a trope that we haven't discussed. But it's one of the tropes that I think most people know by now. Yeah. Like it's one of the most well-known and... And well-discussed. And well-discussed tropes. Um Partially, unfortunately, because of cinema sins who don't Ooh. understand what it means. Um, <laughs> but well, you know, what does it mean, David? A Deus Ex Machina is a, a godlike figure or character or the writer themselves um, inserting themselves into the story with a uh, an out of nowhere change that resolves all of the tension in the story. Yeah, um, it comes from. Where? It means God, it's Greek, right? It's Greek. Uh, or Latin. It comes from it comes from Greece, ancient Greece. Yeah. And it, it means God from the machine. Um, yeah, it's it's God like, from the machine. Um and what it usually would be is literally gods like coming down and being like, All right, stop fighting. stop your fighting. All of this or, is, will end. You're a goose yeah. now, and I exactly. will change the now you two are married because I said so. Like, you know, right. shit would resolve. But later exactly. in, in modern stories, we have sometimes we have our own like fictional gods that we'll insert into a story um, or sometimes right. or... we'll have the author literally stepping into the story uh, or the narrator stepping into the story or something. Um, and yeah. sometimes we'll just have a narrative contrivance that we can read as the god of the story choosing to resolve the plot. Right. Like it's something that breaks our suspension of disbelief basically right. um like oh no we need to escape this volcano oh look a hot air balloon just floated down how convenient hooray right. but it's important in. that that hot air balloon not have been set up earlier in the story and hopefully it should be like sort of framed or shot in such a way that it appears that the hot air balloon is simply descending from heaven um, I think right. a great example of this in fantasy is the Eagles at the end of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah, definitely. total Deus Ex Machina, um, and I would it's say sort of it, it, the way you can sort of try to pick it up um, on your own if you like don't already know this is like <laughs> if you feel like the writer has written the characters into a spot where you're like I can't imagine how they could possibly get out of here. And then when you feel really let down with how they actually get no, out of I, there. No, I, 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 I reject this. Deus really? Ex Machina is a neutral term. It is not an inherently negative trope. Okay. Because sometimes the whole point of a story is that nature itself wants the hero to succeed. If that's the point of your story, then of course you're going to have a Deus Ex Machina ending. Sure, uh, but I, I feel like it mostly happens in stories where that's not the main point. But, I, like, it happens because that's how we tell stories. Like, the protagonist must be a good person who's a hero who wins. Well, I mean, that's become the modern interpretation of the term deus ex machina, but I, I wouldn't use it that way, necessarily. 
Um, Deus Ex Machina can be in a story like The Matrix, wherein, you know, um, we suddenly reveal that, you know, the, the, um, that Neo has this power of the chosen one, which, you know, basically establishes that he is like a god of this universe. Um, like that is a, a deus ex machina, but it's for a purpose. Is that really a deus ex machina though? I feel like that's the entire plot of the Matrix. Well, yeah, no, I mean, it is. Yeah, the plot of the Matrix is that there's a god stepping out of the machine. I, I think that's a misinterpretation of it. Because not every story that has a god in it employs deus ex machina. No, only if the god-like being is resolving the plot or if the plot sort of resolves itself as a result of, you know, fate. Um, So anything that has destiny in it is deus ex machina? No, no, no. It's only if the the purpose of it is to establish, you know, the the opinion of the gods, you know, sort of the, the... um, the view of the the author is being asserted by these the the god the god or the the convenience based resolution to the plot. Mm. We have fallen down a Deus Ex Machina hole. Uh, the the whole point of this digression is that I'm trying to argue that the reason that Avatar: The Last Airbender has a Deus Ex Machina ending isn't necessarily a bad thing because that is the theme of the story is that nature itself will assert itself in order to establish balance. Create balance. But that balance is part of the the way that the world is tuned. It's the natural order of things. And it works through people who have a dedication to their own personal moral code, which is what Aang has. He doesn't kill. Okay. And so as a result, if he sticks to his destiny um, that he has chosen for himself, which is, I'm not going to kill nobody then nature itself will rise to support him. The, the spirit world will reward him for his actions. Okay. I can I can buy that. And they reward him with the ability to take people's <laughs> spending away. Yes, yes. Um, so for the <laughs> Avatar, he has to fight the Fire Lord with his Avatar magic powers. And they do it in a big, like, Basically, battle of magic wills where Aang's all blue and he's all red. And who's going to win? Blue or red? Who's got more magic power? It's Aang. He's got more magic power. He doesn't have to kill the fire. Yeah, I mean, it's just literally a fight of good versus evil. The goodness of Aang versus the evilness of Ozai. And then good wins. And the fire bending is taken away, so he's no longer a, a huge threat, and no one has yeah. to die. Yeah. And it's nice. And I like yeah. it. It's a big war where no one dies. Well, a lot of people die. Um, a lot of people die. And, and I think a lot, of, I think most other characters have probably killed people besides Aang. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, Aang is sort of non interventionalist. I mean, like, he doesn't, um, like, he doesn't force his worldview onto other sure. people. Um, he tries to tell Katara in one episode, like, don't kill someone out of revenge, even though he killed mm-hmm. your mother. Um, you should forgive yeah. him. And she doesn't forgive him, but she decides of her own will not to kill right. him. Because, you know, she knows that it, it wouldn't resolve her character. 
Um, which, you know, I think like that was a good move for the writers. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think an even better move was that she talks to Aang about this, but rejects his, um, idea that she shouldn't kill him, that killing out of revenge, like isn't wrong. Um, and it takes her actually going on that journey and sort of putting her gun to his head, so to speak. Um, right. Her, but it's a waterbending it's gun. A, yeah. It's the thousand tiny little ice shards to his head uh, before she realized, like, she has her own Doctor Who, Who moment where she would never, you know? Um, right. Like, she realizes, I I feel so angry in this moment that I almost and they could, do, but I can't. They don't do anything to make you sympathetic to this character. No, they really don't. Which I really liked that. Like, he is just the worst. He's the worst. He would give up his mother in order to save his own hide. Mm -hmm. He would kill anybody for any reason. Yeah, he's a huge sad sack. He's a loser. Like, there's nothing. There's nothing good about him. He's the worst. But killing him doesn't help anybody. It doesn't change anything. Like... He like he knows that he killed people. He just doesn't have like remorse about it. He's just he's just a an old fool. Do you have anything else to say about Avatar? But is Ang is Ang a technical pacifist or a martial pacifist? Did he kill people? I think you've convinced me that he's a martial pacifist because I actually am struggling to think of a time outside of the Avatar state where. He's really yeah, he done. doesn't pick fights. He only fights in defense of other people or if he is indirect directly being threatened. Right. So he wouldn't even punch somebody just to like, you know, well, but I, I like because he doesn't like their ideology or something. I'm just trying to think of a time where he's like knocked someone in armor off of a ship and like, right, like not in swimming distance of a shore. Um, and I don't think he has, but lots and lots of characters that he's been with have done that. Um, right, exactly. But I don't know if he did. So, so because I, mean, I can't remember. he recognizes that a war is going on. He's right. not going to be like, everyone has to not fight. Yeah. But there are moments, like we discussed sort of at the beginning, like where him being a pacifist puts him at odds with his team members. Yeah. Like, uh, it, the lead up to the final battle is basically like three episodes of him going, but I don't want to kill the Fire Lord. <laughs> I mean, you you say it like it isn't incredibly entertaining and no, fascinating. It is. But I love that, that you know, finale th- four-parter or yeah. movie. It's, oh, it's like, it's, it's my favorite thing. I love it so much. It's so He's good. like talking to all these old past lives who are all telling him like, you got to kill the Fire Lord. You got to do it. And he's you gotta like... You got to kill Hitler. Listen, listen. You know, I know I got to kill him, but, um, but what, what if, if I, I don't? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so then he, like, asks an old airbender who was also the Avatar. And she goes, like, you know, I know that, that the airbenders taught you to, you know, separate yourself from the Earth. But the Avatar can't do that. You have a duty. You have a responsibility. You have a destiny. And he's like... Fuck that, I choose my own destiny. And that's the Boy. End. And that's why I like Avatar. And that's why I dislike Legend of Korra. Because their Legend of Korra's view on pacifism is like these two characters who we've barely met and don't really know anything about. We're just gonna straight up murder them. Um 
just like kill them right to their face. That's and we're not the even going to question it. Here's the thing. That's the problem with Legend of Korra as a whole. This is a digression. But like the problem is that it has all these ideas, but then doesn't have it doesn't stick to them at all. It doesn't interrogate now, them. Correct me if I'm wrong at all. But I'm pretty sure Mingwa and G- G- Gorzo or whatever the lava bending guy's name was. Ugh. In season three, in book three, uh-huh. um, I don't think they ever kill anybody. I don't remember. I have only watched Koro the once, so <laughs> I do not well, remember. They, they don't kill anybody, and Mako just murders Mingwa, and uh, and uh, the and then the Go- Gorzo or whatever his name is, he kills himself. He buries himself in lava because oh, he's yeah. like. Screw I won't this. lose to you. Yeah. Blah. <laughs> this is bad. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about a good show. I, I kind of want to talk about Full Metal Alchemist a little bit. Yeah, um, let's do it. Full Metal Alchemist, it's another big war show. Yes. Wherein, like, the main character never kills anybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I think I like... Maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like... No, I, I feel like I am wrong. <laughs> Ed and Al are exceptional. Um, like the, yeah, they're they're kind of... the best people in the world ever. They're beautiful souls that can do no wrong. Yeah, or refuse to do no wrong, um, or try <laughs> not to. Yeah, well, I mean, in the original FMA, um, there's a a few. Um, or most of the seven deadly sins uh, named homunculi, um, greed, sloth, uh, lust, and pride, f- wrath, etc. Yeah, but not all of them die. I'm trying to remember oh. which one of them actually get murdered. Um, I feel like almost all of them die. No, um, wrath doesn't die. Wrath Gluttony and doesn't envy. die. Gluttony does and envy die. Envy doesn't die. Gluttony envy does dies die. in another universe. It doesn't count. <laughs> But, you know, the the whole point is Full Metal Alchemist's convoluted, crazy story. Go watch our episode on Shonen uh, if you want to hear more about the plot. Yeah. But Ed and Al are, you know, incredibly pacifist, especially in Brotherhood, where they will not kill anybody. They mm-hmm. don't kill Envy when literally Envy has and come that's back like the point. and killed people like 17 different times. And that's that's like and it's often the point of FMA is that so so for those of you who don't know real quick um, it's about two it's an anime about two brothers um, who are alchemists um, and they tried to bring their mother back to life and it cost um, one character Ed his arm and his leg and it cost his brother his entire body and his soul is sort of bound to this suit of armor so the two brothers right. are looking their quest is basically to restore their bodies without causing any more damage to the world um, along the way the government tries to commit a ton of genocide because and they it's have to loosely based it. on germany uh <laughs> germany uh pre-world world war one yeah so they they try and commit a ton of genocide in order to create a magical stone that can grant immortality and ultimate power um <laughs> that's the goal um, right. So it's a lot about violence yes. and specifically about genocidal violence. Yes. Um, and it, it sort of implies that like real genocide is not even based on like any kind of hatred, but just sort of like Pragmatism. a morbid curiosity 
or um, like a, 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 need, a self-serving greed. Yeah, like, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's like, these people need to die so that I can profit. Like, that's kind of what the bad guy's, right. like, motive is. I mean, in, in FMA, or the original one, it's literally just because... Um, just because, like, she, the villain wants to live forever. Yeah. But in Brotherhood, it's so the villain um, can a become quest for God. knowledge. Yeah, well, it's to become God, to have all the knowledge in the universe. And that's that's why Brotherhood is this weird anti-science allegory. Yeah, um, I, I still don't know if I totally agree with you on that, but... Well, I, the, the, the function of, you know, homunculus, the, the dwarf in the jar, dwarf in the flask, um, as this big bad villain... Um, is that he's like, in the end, he pleads with God and asks, like, what was I supposed to do? Like, what what did you want me to do? Mm-hmm. How do you be the singular best version of yourself that you can be if you don't know everything? Yeah. And so the reason he kills everyone in the world is because he needs to know what it's like. In, you know, like... He needs to know what it's like to be more powerful than other people. Mm-hmm. And if you know that, then you know everything is like the the metaphorical, you know, right. leap that they're making. Enlightenment. Yeah, he's yeah, exactly. It's about enlightenment. That, that's the way that's what I was looking for. OK. All right. Uh, and in either case, the moral of the rest of the story is that you shouldn't commit genocide so that you know everything. Yeah, um, it's a pretty simple moral, but um, <laughs> yeah, very very standard, very run in the mill. Yeah, uh, don't commit genocide in order to get uh, right eternal so, knowledge. So basically, the the brothers are looking for the philosopher's stone, which they find out spoilers um, is created by using human lives, basically. Right. Um, and that, as far as they know, that's the only way for them to regain their bodies is to use this. Um, like use other people's lives to do it. Um, and yep. they refuse to do that. And so a lot of like they make their journey harder on themselves and or less exp- expedient. Um, if we're gonna use that term, they have to find all these workarounds. They can't just because they find out pretty early on how to make the stone. Um, like they, yeah, in both in both versions. In both versions, um, like they could just do yeah. it and end it and like play into the bad guy's hands and make a stone and get their bodies back and like walk away. Um, But because of their morality that they don't want to kill anyone, that no one deserves to die for their benefit. um, They refuse to do that over and over and over and over again. Um, And they stop other people from doing that too. It's, it's, it's just something that's so central. Yeah. There's a lot about like respecting the nature of life. Yeah. The existence of of consciousness. Um, there's like a whole subplot about how like sometimes the the philosopher's stones, the the souls trapped within them, can retain some individuality. So it's bad to even use a philosopher's stone, right? Or or if you're going to, it, it almost feels like very um like I I sort of think of like what I've been told about like native American culture a little bit where it's like, yes, you Mm -hmm. can kill, but you have to respect what it is that you're killing and like thank it for its life. Um, I could be wrong and that's not necessarily. Yeah. I mean, yeah. In in a sense, Fulminal Alchemist is like all about the value of a human life. Absolutely. Ed and Al are the heroes because they value 
everything that remotely resembles human life. Right. Or or even um, like animal life. Like right. there a big um really important uh episode ha- that happens in the middle I think of both series is we get a flashback to them training as kids. Um and they're on an island and their teacher drops them off there to survive for a month and she gives them the phrase um all, all is one, one and one is all. all. And it's it's a little bit the circle of life, but it makes them respect what it means to have to take a life to live um, when they have to kill a rabbit to survive or fish or anything like that. And it makes them respect things that attack because they just want to stay alive and makes them understand sort of their smallness and also importance to the larger universe. Yeah. Um, and, I, and then as far as pacifism is concerned, these guys fight. Yeah. They fight hard. Yeah. Um, these are, you know, martial pacifists, really. Um, they beat the crap out of anybody. They just won't kill. Yeah. Um, and, like, the not killing aspect, it bleeds over into non-human entities that literally exist only to kill other things. Um, and you know, there's like this whole scene where they're going up against envy, the, the living personification of envy, of envy, um, who is just this tiny little slug that can turn into a giant dragon that eats people. Um, and even they won't kill that little slug that's going to turn into a dragon and kill people later. (laughs) And, and then the little slug thing is like, I hate you so much for being so pacifistic that I'm going to kill myself. Yeah. And then it kills itself. Yeah. It's a weird ending. It is. But, I mean, it almost makes sense. Almost. I was a little bit like, come on, Envy, just, you know, just hold off. You know, eventually you'll get another Philosopher's Stone and then you'll be a giant dragon again. It's easy. <laughs> easy peasy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Fullmetal Alchemist definitely... On the pacifist spectrum. Do you want to talk a little bit about Steven Universe? Yeah. Steven Universe is, uh, it's coming back. It's, uh, we'll, we'll see where it goes with the ending of it. But as of right now in the show, um, this is a show about don't kill people. Um, yeah. In a lot of ways. Because when you don't kill people, you can become friends with them and turn them from bad guys into good guys. Yeah. Because there have been... So many redemption arcs in this story so far. Oh, it's literally nothing but redemption arcs. And, like, oddly enough, like, none of the other shows that we talked about have, like, major redemption arcs in them except for Avatar with Zuko. Yeah. And, um, I guess, you know, Wander Over Yonder, if it got a third season, it would have done a redemption arc with... Lord Hater, mm-hmm. but it didn't, so it didn't. So it um, didn't. But Steven Universe is all redemption arcs all the time. Yeah. And the villains are clearly supposed to be fascists. Um, and, like, modern fascists who hate gay people. Yeah. And other races. <laughs> it's, like, very clear on this. Yes. And, and, like, they're very authoritarian, like, in every sense of the word. They are literally the diamond authority. Yes. Here are, the, here are the list of things that they don't like. They don't like gay marriage. Um, marriage. They don't like deformities. And they don't like humans and biological life. Yeah. 
those are like the main things that, that it seems out like most hate. things. Oh, and and they're extremely hierarchical. So yes. anybody who is like a low class person who tries to do something outside of their role, like is pearls punished. are supposed to be servants. And if they try and be scientists, they hate that yes. because they're stepping out of their box. Right. But that doesn't mean we can't be friends with the Nazis, Hannah. <laughs> it, it doesn't, I guess. Again, it's it's not super realistic, but I still love it. I don't know. Yeah. It's like a wish fulfillment thing for me. I um, mean, I, I think it'll be really interesting to see how the next few episodes that are coming uh, this month in December, like, roll out um, and what sort of develops sure. from there. Because I think we're... But I don't think that they're going to make it so White Diamond is irredeemable and they have to murder her. I mean, I just don't think that's where they're going. I, I don't think it is either, but I, I'm really interested to see if they're going to pull off making the diamonds redeemable in like a way that a believable way is believable. Yeah. Yeah. That I don't know. I, I don't know if I have confidence that they can do it or not. So I'm really on the fence to see if they'll pull yeah, it off. I mean like pretty clearly like the whole motivation for um, yellow and blue diamond, it seems was to avenge the death of pink diamond. Um, right. which they blame on earth and biological life. So, right. you know, once they realize that pink diamonds, not dead, spoiler alert, <laughs> um, that tension kind of resolves, uh, very but, cleanly and neatly. Uh, um, and they no longer have like a huge motivation to destroy the earth. Right. But they're still, they're still in power. Of... They haven't been robbed of any power whatsoever. Right. They and... just no longer want to do this genocidal thing. Well, necessarily for, like, passionate reasons. Like, they were willing to do it before for very dispassionate reasons of we want its resources, you know? Right. But, yeah, but, but they, they, they weren't super invested in that anyway because they were there were other colonies. The reason that they specifically were like, we got to kill everyone on this planet is because there was a rebellion and the rebellion resulted in the death of their sister, daughter, whatever you call it. Yeah, sister friend, sister wife. No. <laughs> um, uh, right. Yeah. I, I I don't know. We'll see how Steven Universe continues with Steven's hug across the universe. But you know the the reason that like I find Steven Universe so good is because of Lapis and uh, sorry Peridot. Lapis Lazuli and Peridot, which I know in real life the gem is. Supposed to be pronounced Peridot, but it's Peridot. It will always be because I love her and she's great. She um, is maybe one of the best characters. Yeah, I think I think she's amazing and very clearly like a representation of sort of like Internet troll um, fascists. You know, these alt right people on the Internet who are obsessed with the logical and, you know, they're obsessed with, you know, not caring about feelings, only caring about facts. You mm -hmm. triggered SJWs. Yeah. Um, and Peridot is absolutely that in the beginning. Um, just calling everybody clods, you know, which is their version of the N-word, probably. <laughs> um, um, and just, you know, running around being like, I'm so logical. Um, I'm going to effectively use everything on this planet to its most pragmatic end. Um, right. Even if that means the death of tons of people. Mm-hmm. 
Which is like but very then, much the yeah. worldview of of the diamonds. Um, but like the the gems on Earth, the the crystal gems are all very much like no, you need to respect life in all its forms, and you know, and the fact that through it doesn't... that you can achieve a lot a lot of things that you couldn't achieve just through violence, right? And sapping the life out of other things. Sometimes emotions are just as important as logic to solve problems. Yeah. And my favorite scene in the entire show is the one where Peridot learns about music. Yes. Because it's adorable. It really is. And it's one of the best songs, I think, too. It really is. Um, basically, it's it's like she has to learn that some things aren't always like perfectly pragmatic, but they're still useful because they create joy and happiness and love and art. Um and then she starts making art of her own. She becomes an artist. They make meat morphs. Um, meat morphs. Yeah, they don't know the word for art, so they came up with their own word. It's great. Yeah, so I mean, I really appreciate the way that they did it. And there's a really great scene where Peridot is talking to this fascist leader, Yellow Diamond. Um, and Peridot is talking to her like, Listen, I've learned a lot from living on Earth, and the most logical thing is to not destroy Earth because there's a lot of things here that we could use in way more effective ways. We can use all the biological life to our best purposes. Yeah. And then she's like, no, I just want them all to die because I hate them, <laughs> which is, you know, what actual Nazis believe. Right. But people on the alt-right on, like, the internet think that they're these, like, paragons of logic who, you know, they just believe in, you know... Uh, you know, protecting them, their own race. And, you know, it's all just, it's all just for the purposes of, of logic and reason and, you know, not caring about feelings, only caring about facts, but it's not logical. Nazism is not logical. Right. It's just pure hatred and ideology. And Peridot is confronted with that, realizes that Nazis are stupid and don't care about what doing what's best for the world. Um, and, and so then she switches sides. Yeah, she does. Something you may have noticed for this episode is that we haven't really touched on superheroes. And that's because superheroes have their own complicated history with this. Um, you know, during the Comics Code era, literally superheroes were not allowed to kill. Yep. Um, and so that created a whole bunch of stories about bad guys that were not allowed to kill. Yep. Um, and then... We started deconstructing those stories in the 80s and we got a lot of stories about like why doesn't why Batman can't kill and why Spider-Man can't kill and all these other superheroes who apparently can't kill, even though they definitely would have been killing this whole time if there wasn't a comics code right. involved. So we might talk about that some other time. We might not. Um, but as of right now, I think we've we've talked for quite a while about pacifism. Yeah. Um. <laughs> peace and love everybody yeah so like i don't know there's just a lot to say about this topic and it's a really interesting topic like i think we spent a long time just talking about pacifism as an idea um right because it's complicated and i think it's a conversation that we need to keep having even now um right and it interacts with the real world so much more than a lot of the other tropes oh, that we've yeah. talked about yeah um you know, I feel like a lot of tropes are um, exaggerations or uh, like caricatures of uh, like things that happen in real life 
um, or like codified right. versions of that. Whereas like pacifist. Yeah, I mean, all fiction has to come from from real life conflict. Sure. Sure. Otherwise, we don't believe in it. We don't care about it. Right, but but it's always either exaggerated or fantastical or made um, other in some way. And I don't know. I feel like with pacifist tropes, even when it is fantastical, it's something that feels so viscerally real because it's something that I think we deal with every single day of our lives, you know? Yeah. Is this We question. walk around and we want to kill Nazis. <laughs> Or, you know, you want to like, you want to shove the person in front of you because they're walking too slow or you like have a fight with your friend and so you slap them. We we all have a murderous rage that we want to inflict on the world, but that we have to suppress. Yeah. And we watch a lot of TV shows and movies with guns and explosions because we want to let that stuff out. Mm -hmm. But the way that I let it out is by watching media wherein everything can be solved with the right, just the right words or just the right display of truth and righteousness and justice. Mm -hmm. Or where strength is disarming, not killing. Yeah. And it just allows peace to reign. Yeah. And you know, like, (sighs) wouldn't it be nice? Gandhi was like a big racist and like, he kind (laughs) of sucked in a lot of ways. But he had some good ideas. He, he had some things worth listening to. And, you know, same with, like, Martin Luther King wasn't great to his wife. But it uh, doesn't mean we should not listen to some of his ideas there. Yeah, and Jesus uh, is fictional. <laughs> oh, shit. David, you let out the secret. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but he was pretty good, too. Yeah. Um, and I, I like peace and I want peace to reign in the world. Yeah. And it feels like as of right now, peace is a total impossibility. It really um, does feel like a struggle. Cause we're sort of devolving into fascism just more and more, but I feel like there's some nonviolent way out of it. I feel like there's a way to have a revolution without that, violence. that creates justice without violence or revenge. Mm. Um, and that's what I, I hope the future looks like is, yeah. you know, a, a peaceful revolution in America. Yeah, I, I agree, comrade Frank. Yeah, peace out. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye.